Well, thank you to all the kids and thank you, worship team, for uh, a very meaningful time this morning of exalting our King. Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth. Goodwill toward men. That is many times the message that you see on Hallmark cards. That is in songs. And it's coming from the authorized version of the Bible, the old original King James. And it's the message that is proclaimed of hope by the heavenly host on the night when it was being declared to the shepherds that the Messiah was being born in Bethlehem. But as we discussed last week, many in America have placed their faith in a version of the gospel that claims that God has guaranteed Christians that they will experience physical, relational, and material blessing in this life. In fact, as you look at that verse that I just quoted from, based on the authorized version of that passage, it seems to communicate that with the birth of Jesus, he would bring peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Now, I don't know about you, but as I read the, the newspaper, that's that thing you get in the morning. It comes out on your porch. Uh, you open it up in your easy chair. Uh, kids, it's not. The, I, where's the peace on earth? Where's the peace on earth? In fact, didn't Jesus say in Matthew 10, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Because he knew that when people would hear his message, the good news, one family member would believe and the other would reject. And there'd be division within marriages, within families, within nations. That's why we want to make sure that what we are proclaiming as the gospel is what's accurate in Scripture. Because if not, we'll hear things and then we'll become disillusioned and say, I'm not experiencing that. If that's true in the Bible, I'm not experiencing that. Maybe the gospel is not true. Maybe what Jesus claimed is not real. In fact, if you open your Bible there to Luke 2, verse 14, you'll notice something. Most of you have a newer translation that's based on more uh, older uh, Greek manuscripts. You'll notice that Luke 2.14 in the newer translations doesn't say what I just said when we began. Notice what it says in the New American Standard. It says, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men, with whom he is pleased. That's a completely different message. In fact, in the Greek, the message of the angels was even more precise. 
God's peace was to be given to men of His good pleasure, which means to those upon whom God's will or favor rests. One pastor summed it up this way. What the angels were saying is this. Salvation peace, not military peace, not political peace, salvation peace with God belongs to those whom God is pleased to give it. It's not a reward for those who have goodwill, but it's a gracious gift to those who are objects of God's goodwill. Those are two completely different messages. That's why it's important and why we were looking last week at the importance of why when we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to other people, we have to be accurate or we're going to disillusion them when what they experience doesn't match what Scripture has to say. So last week, we began, uh, in fact, if you don't have uh, an outline uh, or a bulletin, uh, if you just raise your hand, we want to make sure that you have that, uh, because we're going to be uh, covering through that uh, this morning. And uh, we're going to have to go fast, and so some of the verses you may miss, and it'll be there uh, in the outline for you to go back and check uh, as well. See, what we saw last week is there's two Gospels. There's the American Gospel that says that if you become a Christian, God guarantees you physical, relational, and material blessing in this life. And then I propose to you the real Gospel actually guarantees you the opposite. Jesus guarantees that you will suffer for his namesake if you choose to live a godly life. And as we saw, as we've been going through James, he's asked the question, who is wise and understanding? Who is it that fears the Lord and avoids evil? And as we saw in uh, verse 13 of chapter 3 of James, He says that person is the one who demonstrates it in their good behavior, their godly life, their way of living. And then he also says, and this is what we're focusing on today, is that person will then have a heart attitude toward God that is gentle, especially during times of suffering. Well, I don't know about you, But I know for me, when we use the word gentle, we tend to think of uh, petting a lamb or uh, holding a baby. Uh, That's not the word that's here uh, in the Bible. And so what I've done over the last three weeks is explain what does it mean to be gentle. So if you look at your outline there, what I've first done is given a definition of what does the word itself actually mean. And I've summarized what I thought was the best definition. Gentle is a grace-derived heart attitude towards God. 
where a believer chooses in faith to accept God's dealings with him as good. He will not dispute or resist God or his will. And when he has authority and power, this attitude will demonstrate itself with an internal character that is strong, yet humble and tender. Again, that's still kind of nebulous, hard to grab onto. And so what we did uh, two weeks ago is we actually looked at the most humble, gentle person in history. And that is the person of Jesus Christ. And so as you'll notice there on your outline, uh, going through the outline of Philippians 2, we looked at what did it mean for Jesus to humble himself, to be gentle before his father. And you'll notice there on the left-hand side, Jesus didn't regard equality with God something to be grasped. He actually emptied himself of some of his privileges, some of his divine right and authority as God. He was willing to submit himself under the Father's authority. That's why he said in John repeatedly, which we'll We are going through now, uh, as Thomas, uh, when he teaches here on Sunday, uh, Jesus says over and over again, I do nothing of my own initiative, only what I see my Father doing. Jesus absolutely obeys. And as remember when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's considering, I know I'm going to the cross, what does he say? What does he say? He wished that this cup could be taken from him. But he says, not my will, but your will be done. And then last of all, Jesus obeyed his father perfectly, even to the point of dying on the cross. Perfect obedience. Emptied himself, humbled himself. Was willing to take ridicule, mocking from his own creation. Lied about, falsely accused. Yet he responded with gentleness toward his father. Why would Jesus do that? The second column there on the right is the motivations. Hebrews 12 talks about the joys that were set before him such that he was willing to endure the cross. What were the joys? What was it that was coming such that he was willing to suffer, humble himself, We see those listed there on the right-hand side. The Father had a plan from eternity past, and it was to redeem those who had rebelled against Him. And He would do that through Christ's atoning death and resurrection. The Father had planned to give Jesus a bride, and the death and resurrection of Christ would purify her and present her as pure and holy to Him. I don't have it listed here, but he he would become the perfect body. He would be the head and his church would be the body. And he would be Lord of his church. The Father is going to put Jesus at his right hand of power and authority. He would give him a name above all names. That every tongue would confess, every knee would bow. That Jesus would then subjugate all authority under his rule and then give it to the Father for the Father's ultimate glory. That's why Jesus was willing to humble himself. 
That's why for the short term, he was willing to suffer. Because for eternity, he would reign. So when it comes to the issue, as we've been reading in James, where he says a real believer, a genuine believer who is wise and understanding, one of the things that will be evident, first things that will be evident in their life, is they will have a different attitude than the person who believes in demonic wisdom, natural wisdom, or the flesh. They will have a gentle attitude toward God. And so what I've done is, to make it easier, is I've come up with a definition of what that looks like, and I've put it on the uh, outline there, and we're going to go through the details of that uh, as quickly as, as we can. And so you'll notice there on the outline, the definition starts this way. What does it mean for you and me to be gentle? Is, first of all, that we need to be like Christ. And then I've listed for you, so what did Christ do? He was humble. He has a future joy and a perspective that made it possible for him to choose to be humble and gentle. So like Christ, as we... Uh, as it says there in Philippians 2, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's a command that Paul gives. He was humble, we're to be humble. Now we know what it looks like for him. What should it look like for us? Down below, the definition continues. Like Christ... The gentle heart attitude of a genuine believer willingly submits to God's authority. I willingly surrender and come underneath his authority. And that believer's soul can rest every day. See, because the issue of gentleness is it's it's a heart attitude. It's a perspective. And it's one of rest. Why? That's what we're going to talk about here in just a minute. But it's all about rest. God has saved us and called us to rest in Him and His salvation. And the only reason we're able to do that is because the Holy Spirit that has been given to us enables us to believe with absolute conviction, that's faith, Believe, conviction, those are definitions of faith, the following things. And these are the things that we looked at last week. I can have a heart attitude toward God that is gentle when I realize that my sin has been forgiven and I'm at peace with and can draw near to God with a clean conscience. We saw last week that we don't have to strive We don't have to be on the hamster wheel of trying to impress God, earn our way into heaven. It's already done. I can rest. I am His. Number two. The person who is gentle, they understand that they've been redeemed from the slave market of sin. Now, unfortunately, here in America... We teach that you've been freed from sin so that you can be free to do whatever you want. But as it said there in Romans that we saw last week, 
we've been freed from sin to be enslaved to God. We've just changed masters. It's no longer my flesh and my sin. It's now God. He's my master. And I'm glad, I'm grateful to be His slave. See, I will not have rest in my soul if God and I are fighting over who's in charge. True. There's only one Lord in the kitchen, and it's usually my wife. (laughs) It's Jesus. He's the king. And he's called me to be a good slave. Third, we saw that it was an honor to be worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Jesus says, blessed, grace is given to you. Blessed are you if you've been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Rejoice, be glad. Why? Because your reward in heaven is great. See, just like Jesus, why was he willing to humble himself? Why should I be willing to suffer for Jesus? It's because I know I'm going to be rewarded and it will be great. That's why I can rejoice and be glad. So this week, we're going to look at the last nine items that are the proper attitude that we should have such that we would be meek, which is one of the first characteristics that James says a genuine believer should have and possess. And my prayer is, as we look at each one of these, we would be evaluating ourselves. Do I believe this? Is this, is this true in my life? Or am I fighting against God on these issues and principles? Let me just pray for us as we dive in. Precious Father, we, we are absolutely grateful for the gift that we celebrate on Christmas, which was the gift of Yourself. Lord, You were willing to, to give us hope purpose, meaning in the midst of disappointment, suffering, pain, hurt. But Lord, I pray that uh, as we look at the truth of your word, it would give us your joy, your happiness, and it's all for your glory. Amen. Point number four, Jesus has promised every believer he will be rewarded for his faithful and sacrificial obedience. Why is this important? Here's why. In any situation that you and I are in on a daily basis, doing the right thing is hard. And then we're tempted to want to do something that we know is not right. Why would I do the right thing that's hard and not do the sinful thing that's easy right now? God gives us the motivation for that. Let's look at uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 11. 
verse 1 and 2. I'm going to have to, because of time, start reading. If you get there a little late, that's okay. Sorry. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. Verse 6. And without faith it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Faith is all about the reason why I'm willing to obey him. And that's why it says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Do you love me? And every time I'm willing to obey him, even when it hurts, even when I reap the consequence of losing my job because I'm not willing to go along with my boss who wants me to lie on the uh, numbers that are presented to the uh, corporation of what the books really look like. It's all right, I'll even give you a bonus if you lie. But I believe that God is, and He will reward me if I do what is right. But see, the question is, and notice the, the terminology here, this is the definition of faith. Is that a conviction that I have? Do I believe that I'm okay with suffering today because I believe with absolute conviction He will reward me? Revelation 22:12 says this, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. He's coming. And he's coming with rewards. Do I believe that? Number five. Someone who is gentle. If in this life he properly views himself as a slave of Christ that serves and regards others as more important than himself, God will exalt him in the next life. Married couples, who's going to get their way? At work, whose agenda is going to be followed? In the church, different views, opinions. How should I view myself and how should I view others if I'm gentle in my attitude towards God? Turn over to Mark 10, verse 42. And I'll begin reading Mark 10:42. Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. But it's not this way, verse 43. It's not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be the first among you shall be slave of all. For whoever the... For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Notice, exactly what we're doing here is, we're looking at the example of Jesus. Why did he humble himself? He knew the joys that were before him. Jesus is doing the same thing here. He says, guys, how should you look at yourself? How should you view yourself if you're a gentle person before God? You need your, he says, if you want to be great in the next kingdom, you need to view yourself as the slave of all here. 
turn over to Philippians 2, which is when Paul, the whole issue in the church in Philippi was there was conflict. Two ladies had issues. Never imagined that occurring. And a lot of the theology that's in this book of Philippians is actually just trying to explain and encourage people to resolve their conflicts. Well, one of the reasons why you have conflicts is I want to do them my way. Notice what Jesus says, Philippians 2, starting in verse 2. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. By the way, as we've been reading through James, what did he say is the fruit of demonic wisdom? He said it's selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. It's exactly what Paul is saying here to the Philippians. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. See the pattern? It's just repeated over and over again. We have to look at our life, who we are, in the same way that Jesus viewed himself and viewed God the Father. The question is, is do I really... Am I looking forward to the joys that would be set before me if I'm willing to put the interests of others before myself today in this life? Am I willing to be gentle before the Father? Number six. Only the Spirit can change the heart of others. He or she intercedes to God with a thankful and peaceful heart rather than choose to worry or manipulate. This is where you see gentleness manifested in relationships like no other place. See, when we want something and we don't get it, what do we do? Nag, manipulate, gossip, slander, build a faction, create an alliance. There are all kinds of things that we can do to accomplish what we want, but it can hurt people, cause division. 2 Timothy 2, the Apostle Paul is instructing Timothy on how to handle conflict in his church. And he says in uh, chapter 2, verse 24, he says, the Lord's slave may be bond servant in your translation but it should actually say the lord's slave so paul is saying to timothy how do you view yourself you should see yourself even though you're the leader of the church you should be see yourself you're a slave of god the lord's slave must not be quarrelsome but be kind to all able to teach patient when wronged with gentleness there's our word With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, 
having been held captive by him to do his will. Notice what it says. Why can he, as the leader of his church, his responsibility is to teach, his responsibility is to correct, and he can do it with an attitude of gentleness. Why? He can't change this person. Notice what it says. Who does the changing of the person that you're teaching and instructing and correcting? What does it say there in the passage? If perhaps God may grant them repentance. See, one of the reasons why we worry and fret when it comes to our relationships with other people is we actually think we can change them. I was having this conversation with some young uh, female teenagers in our group. The greatest lie that girls can believe is, well, when we get married, I'll change him. Uh, it's nowhere in the Bible. It's not true. Talk to any of the older ladies, they will confirm it. It's not how it works. But do I believe that? Do I believe that? In how I relate with people, do I get all uh, whipped up? Do I get all anxious? Do I get all hot? Because... They're not changing the way I want them to change. See, once I understand that God is the only one who can change them, I can relax. I need to be responsible. When I'm told to confront sin, I confront sin. When I'm told to teach what is correct or there's falsehood, I do that. But I cannot change this person. Only God can. 1 Peter 3. Turn here. This is probably going to be the most important passage we look at today. 1 Peter 3. Peter is writing to the church that's being persecuted. Could have been under the time of the Roman Emperor Nero. And the church is experiencing horrible things. And Peter is writing to them about how they should perceive their persecution and how they should act. Amazingly so, if you want to find a book in the Bible that talks about submitting to authority, here it is. But that doesn't seem right. This is the authority that's persecuting me. This is the authority that's abusing me. And yet I'm being told to submit to authority? Yes, it doesn't make sense if you believe the American gospel. But if you believe the gospel that's in the Bible... It makes lots of sense. Let's look at uh, 1 Peter 3, verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, verse 4, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of, uh, there's our word, a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. Notice, ladies, it is precious to God when a woman is willing out of love for him to suffer when she's in a marriage with a man who is not a believer. 
there's debate as to what it means when it says here, uh, one who is disobedient to the word. Some say it's maybe a Christian who's not living the Christian life, or it's actually uh, they both were unbelievers. The woman came to Christ. He didn't. Now she's married to a man who's disobedient to the word. He's not a believer. What does she do? He's not going to fear God. He's not going to fear the scriptures and how he should treat her. What does she do? Now, this is not full orbs because there are exception clauses to everything I'm going to share, but we don't have time to go all the way uh, and uh, unpack this passage. But I just say, what is it that's being challenged here is she is to win her husband without a word. And the word one there is, can be translated convert. He can be converted without a word by her gentle and quiet spirit. Because what is she, what is she believing? It's not me who's going to change him. I'm not going to do it. It's him. And when she is living as God is God, that brings him glory and honor. That is precious in the sight of God. But notice the first phrase there. And when she's being challenged by Peter to live that way, what's the first phrase? It says, in the same way. Why don't you flip over to chapter 2, verse 19. He had just talked about something, and then he goes and talks about women who are in a relationship, possibly with an unbelieving husband. And he's saying, in the same way, do this. In the same way as what? That's in in the preceding verses that we'll look at. Look at verse 19. For this finds favor or grace. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up and under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Verse 20. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Now, verse 21. This is so un-American. It's hard to read this verse and really think about what it says. Verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose. Can you imagine? They're suffering. And you get a letter and says, oh, by the way, you were called for this purpose. Whoa. But then Peter then gives motivation. What's the motivation that you can fulfill the purpose for which you've been called? Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Verse 23, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins on his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. So when he goes to talk to the women and he says, ladies, I understand your situation is difficult. What he says is, in the same way that Jesus, who is God, was mocked. He was suffered. He suffered. 
He experienced injustice. What did he do? He entrusted himself to his father who judges justly. He's going to take care of it. See, perspective of the future helps give me comfort in how I live today. And so when the ladies are struggling with what's going on in their home, he says, I understand, and so does Jesus. He suffered too. Philippians 4, verse 6 and 7. Those two passages help us understand the whole concept that we can't change others. We're not called to change others. We're called to speak truth, uh, correction, reproof, admonition. But we can't change other people. What are we to do then? Philippians 4, verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How is a person able to be gentle? Totally at rest. Totally at rest. Why? Because of the injustice that's occurring in their life, they go to Him. He's the one who can change it. He's the one who's watching everything that's occurring, every word that is said, every injustice that occurs. He's watching. He saw it. He saw it. And when I give it to him with thanksgiving, Lord, it's painful. It hurts. But thank you. Thank you that I'm able to suffer for you like you suffered for me. Only then, when I have that perspective, will I be able to have a mind and a heart that is at rest, not anxious. It's a, notice the, the number there. It's an exact number. I'm to be anxious for what? Nothing. My kids. Well, they're rejecting Jesus. They're choosing poorly. Nothing. Be anxious for nothing. How's your kid's heart going to be changed? But by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to him. Why? He's the one who transforms hearts, not me. Number seven. I'm able to be gentle, have a heart that is at rest, And I can even love, bless, and pray for those who intentionally hurt me. Because I know on Judgment Day, Jesus will vindicate any injustice that you or I will suffer. Flip over to Romans 12, verse 17. This is not your American gospel. But this is a gospel that sustains. It's true, gives real hope. Romans 12, verse 17. These, this is a command. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Remember, it's an exact number. 
anyone, I am not to pay back evil. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. One of the points I didn't put in here, there's so many I didn't put in here, but we don't even have the option and opportunity to be bitter. Remember, that's one of the fruits of demonic wisdom, bitter jealousy. I don't even have the option to not forgive. Verse 18, verse 19, never take your own revenge. How frequently am I supposed to not take my revenge? Never. Beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, most people would counsel, don't get angry at the person who is hurting you. What does he counsel? Don't be neutral. Actually, bless him. Neutrality is not the solution here. The solution is, is actually giving food to my enemy. See, what's the definition of an enemy? That's someone who wants to hurt me. I'm challenged to trust God. My job is to be like Jesus. Who did Jesus come and die for? How many were saying, Jesus, I'll repent if you come? He says, for while we were yet sinners, we were his enemy. Christ died for us. Jesus loved us while we were his enemy. Nothing gives him more glory than when I do the same. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Number eight. I'm able to be gentle in this life, even if I experience disease. There are people in my life that want to hurt me. I know that there's demonic entities. As we just saw yesterday, a tsunami could come. An earthquake could occur. A tornado. Even death. The reason why I can be gentle in this life, even though all these things are out there, is I know that none of those things can separate me from the love of God. I don't have to be afraid. They may be able to harm my body and they may take my possessions, but they can't take my salvation. Notice what it says in Matthew 10:28: Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Romans 8 Verse 35 says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Verse 38, For I am convinced. Notice, there's that word again. There's that faith word. Do I just know it's true or am I convinced? Because if I'm convinced, 
I'll live differently. Paul says, For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from Christ. Number nine, I'm able to suffer in this life and have a gentle attitude toward the Father because I know that in the eternal state, the new heaven and the new earth, I'm going to be promised a new body. There'll be no more pain, no sorrow, no curse, and no death. See, I'm looking forward to that. That's my hope. That's my motivation. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. Revelation 21 says that when the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, verse 3, it says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Behold, I am making all things new. That's my hope. That's my motivation. That's why I can experience in this life suffering. Number 10, no one can steal our eternal inheritance. It's protected by God himself. I don't need Wells Fargo. I don't need the Brinks. They get robbed periodically. Especially if you have information that's important, zeros and ones on the Internet gets hacked, gets stolen. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. Notice, too, in 1 Peter, the passage there at the very beginning of 1 Peter when he's going to encourage them how they can live their life in the midst of suffering. He starts with... Your salvation is secure. Guys, I want you to know, before I I challenge you to live this way, you first need to know your salvation is secure. This is what he says, 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, and is reserved for you in heaven. Wow. And it's protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the final time. It's protected by God. It's reserved. It's undefiled. It's yours and mine. 
if I believe in the gospel that's in Scripture. Number 11. Why am I willing to suffer when he asked me to suffer in this life? Why am I willing to be mocked, humiliated, even put to death? Number 11. We'll get the privilege to co-reign with Jesus during his millennial reign. In the first resurrection, it says there in Revelation 21, in the first resurrection, those who've been put to death for their faith in Christ, they're actually going to come back and reign with him. Reign with him. I don't know about you, but nice. That's awesome. That's a joy set before us that's motivating. Number 12. To the extent that a person faithfully loves, obeys, and suffers to exalt the name of Christ in this life, he will correspondingly be rewarded with a greater position of authority after the first resurrection. That, that's a huge point. To the point I'm willing to suffer here is to the level I'm going to be rewarded there. Isn't that what, what Jesus said? Wasn't he the slave of all? Wasn't he perfectly obedient? That's why his, in Philippians it says, that's why he was exalted an heir above every name. That's why every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Why? He was the perfect one who obeyed. He was perfectly humble. He was perfectly obedient. So to the level that he was willing to suffer is the level he was exalted in the next life. That is true for you and for me. That's why in the parable in Luke... When the master of his kingdom, he gave a mina to each of his slaves and he left. And when he came back in Luke 19, verse 17, or actually verse 16, the first slave said, Master, your mina that was given to him, your mina has made ten minas more. So you gave me a mina you gave me a gift. You gave me some talents. You gave me some abilities. I took that for you, and I've made ten in this life. Notice what the Master says. Well done, good slave. Because you've been faithful in a very little thing, you're to be in authority over ten cities. A little mina, little coin. He took that mina was faithful. He said, in the future, you're going to be over ten cities. Ten cities. To the level you're faithful here, in a little thing, you'll be rewarded for all eternity. My desire by going through all this is when James said that one of the first qualities that will be evident in the life of a believer who is truly wise and understanding, as he said that they will have gentleness that comes from wisdom. What is gentleness? My prayer is this morning, you understand what that is. Last week I shared about a, a family that I know who was on the mission field uh, in a predominantly 
Muslim country. And as I shared, they'd been there for an extended period of time, building relationships, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, kind of on the down low because it was a country that had Sharia law. But one night, three men broke into their home, bound and gagged the family members. And then while the husband was in the next room bound, he listened as the three men took turns with his wife. Now think about that for a minute. They're serving Jesus. They're sacrificing. They've gone to another culture. They're putting their kids at risk. Shouldn't God bless them? See, the American gospel would say, well, we promised you physical, relational, and material blessing. Now, when that family went through that horrific experience, would the American gospel provide them any comfort whatsoever? In fact, their faith would be shipwrecked because their God lied to them. He failed them. But I can say to you, that family is in a different country serving the Lord faithfully today. Why? It hurt. It was painful. It was absolutely violating. But it was an honor to suffer in the name of Jesus Christ. And they're willing to go back because they want people to know Jesus Christ. And they know their reward in heaven will be great. So... The challenge this morning is, James is saying, his whole challenge in the passage we've been going through in James 3 is, he's talking to the people, Jews who've been dispersed throughout as they left Jerusalem, and he's saying, in the church, there are two kinds of people. Those who have adopted the wisdom of the world, the flesh and the devil, and they pursue selfish ambition, and they have bitter jealousy in their heart. And they have total disorder and chaos. Or, he said, there are those who are wise and understanding. And it will be proven by their life. And the first quality that will be in their life is they are gentle. They have an attitude toward God that he is master. They are his slave. And whatever he wants to do with my life, I'm good with that. Why? Why am I good with that? He promises to reward that good slave proportionally to the level that he loves him. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And what is faith? I believe that God exists and he's a rewarder of those who fear him. Do you and I have an attitude of gentleness? Or do we have more of an American gospel perspective? Let's pray. Lord, you gave us a gift in Jesus. And as with all gifts, it's undeserved. But Lord, with that gift, you purchased us with a great price, the precious blood of your son. 
Lord, I pray that you would help us to show respect, appreciation, gratitude for the amazing sacrifice that was made for us and that we would be willing to suffer for you. Lord, it would be an honor. And Lord, we'd be willing to do that because we believe your promises that you will reward us forever in heaven. That, Lord, we will be able to reign with you in your millennial kingdom. Lord, help us to become convinced. Help us to believe. Have our minds changed. Our hearts transformed. And, Lord, the fruit in our lives would be evident to all. And may it bring glory to you, Father, and your Son, Jesus. Amen.